me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Look at your neighbor and tell them, whew, I love you. There once was a man named Abram, who was a descendant of Noah. God told him to move with his wife Sarai, an entire family away from where they live. God made a promise, I will make you into a great nation and bless you, and all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram and his family left. At one point, they stopped and God told him to look around. All the land that you see, I will give to you your children. Then, one night, God took Abram outside. Look up and count the stars. This is the number of children you will have. But Abram was already 75 years old, and Sarai was way too old to have children. So they decided that Sarai's servant Hagar should have Abram's child. Hagar became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Ishmael. Yet, God told Abram again, You will be the father of many nations. God changed their names to Abraham and Sarah and promised that it would be through Sarah that God's blessing would come. Exactly as God promised, Sarah became pregnant, giving birth to a son named Isaac. When Isaac was still a young boy, God told Abraham to take his son up on a mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham took Isaac, laid him on an altar, and took out his knife to kill him. But an angel stopped Abraham, and God provided a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac. Years later, Abraham and Sarah died and left everything they owned to Isaac. Isaac married and had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was Isaac's favorite. And as the oldest, he was set to gain his father's inheritance. But Jacob wanted the inheritance. So he came up with a scheme to trick his father, who was now old and blind, into promising it to him. He dressed in Esau's clothes and put animal skin on his hands because Esau's hands were very hairy. Confused, Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob and promised him the inheritance instead of Esau. This caused a huge fight, one that almost ended in murder before they went their own ways. Thankfully, they reunited, and God promised to bless Jacob's family. Jacob had 12 sons of his own. And like his father and grandfather before him, Jacob had a favorite son. Little did Jacob know that his favoritism would put his son, Joseph, in danger of being killed by his own brothers. Now that's some pretty fast painting right there, isn't it? <laughs> isn't that amazing? All kinds of gifts, all kinds of things that we can use to bring God's message. I love it. I love it. Ever had the opportunity to have a uh, 
pieces to a jigsaw puzzle, but you didn't have the top. <laughs> Maybe you had the puzzles in a Ziploc bag or some, some way, but you didn't have the top. You didn't have the big picture to see. All you had is your little big, and, and you'd, you'd say, oh, well, I can figure it out. So you spread them out, start putting the little, you try to make these little pieces work, but you have no idea what you're really putting together. And that's really about what we're doing through this series. We're taking little pieces each week to make a bigger picture. We don't always see what the big picture is, but each little piece will fit and will make it uh, uh, more reality to us. It, it gives us that big picture when all the pieces fit together. Is that true? Well, it is true. And there's a lot of different pieces that go into this. For instance, there's 66 books of the Bible. There are uh, 1,089 chapters in the Bible. There are some 775,000 words in the Bible. And how they all fit together is really the question for most people. They may come into Christ, they may make Christ their Savior and their Lord, but they still don't see the big picture. And so what our goal is, is by the end of our series, you will have a panoramic view from Genesis to Revelation. Now we're going to cover a lot of ground today. The video helped with that, but we're going to cover a lot of ground today. So, so tighten your belt, and here we go. Today we're going to talk about God building a nation next week. And remember in the reading, we want you to read for the chapter that we're, we're coming up to. So you should have read chapter 2. Next week, read chapter 3. Parents, grandparents, be sure and go over that material with your children to reinforce all of this. They get it in Sunday school. The little ones are getting it now in uh, extended worship. And we are getting it in here. So we want to make sure that you're getting this. Amen? If you miss a Sunday of the messages, they're online. Be sure and, and, and log on to rocjinx.org. And when that comes up, there's, a, there's some tabs at the top that say online features. Click that and the sermons pop right up by date, by title, and by speaker. And just punch, plug it in and just take off. Here you go. Okay? The good news about doing it that way, you can fast forward through the commercials. And, and it'll help you. But God is going to build his nation. And it's from this nation that the Messiah is to be born. And the Messiah would come to free the people from their sins. And so there are all kinds of characters in chapter 2. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Esau, there's Rachel, there's Rebecca, there's Lot. I mean, we could, do, we could do a message on each of these and really gain a lot from it. But for the next few minutes this morning, I want to focus on the one character, Abraham. Because he is very much a main character in the story that God tells. Now, who's the main character of the story? We learned it last week. Who's the main character of the story? G-O-D. And it is? G-O-D. And it is? All people say it. One more time. There you go. Don't get confused. His name is? Very good, okay. I'm, boy, you guys are sharp. <laughs> but the story takes up, Abraham's story takes up about 13 chapters here in Genesis, and then uh, he's even mentioned 75 times in the New Testament. So we're going to read a lot about Abraham as we go through this year and through the story, and it helps us understand the big picture of Scripture. But let's first of all 
Look about what we knew about him. Early on, he was called Abram, and his wife Sarah was first known as Sarai in the Bible. God would form a covenant with them that would make Abraham the father of this great nation. And at that point, he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, and Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah. And that's the way we know them today. If you turn in those Bibles you held up, to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to pick up with the story of Abraham today. But there's uh, there's been a lot that happens between Genesis 10 and Genesis 12 that's not recorded for us uh, here today. Genesis 10 wraps up with Noah and the flood, and that's kind of where we left off last week. Then Genesis 11 basically is a thousand years in history, and the Bible doesn't really record uh, that for us in, in great detail. And in Genesis 12, it picks up with Abraham. So there are, there are around 100,000 years between Noah and Abraham historically. So Genesis 11, if you look through that, it's a genealogy. It's, uh, it's just a long list of names that's uh, setting us up for the life of Abraham. It's showing us how Abraham is a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. And so a thousand years pass between Noah and Abraham, and then we read of Abraham's life in Genesis chapter 12. And God calls out to Abraham, and he calls Abraham to move to a place that God would designate. Now, Chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Then flip over a few chapters to Genesis 15. God's going to make Abraham the father of this great nation, and he says, uh, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. But in Genesis 15, 5, God takes Abraham outside and he says, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can. Then he said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. And so God says to Abraham, you're going to be a father of this great nation. Your descendants will be greater than the stars of the sky. Now, there's something about looking at the starry sky out in the country than there is sitting in the city. Have you noticed? It seems like there's more of them when you get away from the city. They just, wow. I mean, it's just like, wow. I've been missing out. So we're reading the story. God's going to build a nation, but immediately, immediately, there's some problems with the plan that God's come up with. I mean, if you think about it. Abraham and Sarah, they certainly don't seem like the logical choice to build a nation from. For one thing, Abraham came from a family of idol worshipers. Joshua chapter 24 tells us of Abraham's father, Terah, being an idol worshiper. It even indicates that he was an idol maker. And this is the family that Abraham comes from. And it seems like an unusual choice to build this nation upon Abraham, making him the foundation. Coming from an idol worshiping family. But even more unlikely is that Abraham and Sarah, well, they're this elderly couple who've never had children before. We were talking about Sunday school this morning. I talked about the youngest in there and then the oldest in there. And then I said, well, what if the oldest had a baby? And the comment was immaculate conception. (laughs) Yeah. But then they, you know, you began to try to wrap your mind around that. And somebody mentioned they knew somebody that was like 52 when they had a child. I mean, it's possible in later age to do things that don't seem possible. But this one, this is the most unlikely couple that God would use. He would choose in this infertile couple to populate a nation. Doesn't make any sense. 
He's telling this plan to the angels. And the angels are going, okay, sounds great. We're going to make a new nation. and going to make a great nation. They're going to be great. And oh, yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome. And so they start looking around. and go, hey, what about this couple? They're kind of young and active. And, you know, they play tennis once a week. I mean, look at these folks here. And then God says, no, I want to use these two over here, this infertile couple that are old. Really? The angels look at him and go, really? Are you sure? Now, God, this would be a much better choice. God said, no, nah, I want these guys. Oh, the angels were even puzzled. But he says, I'm going to use them to build a great nation. And that's the beginning of what we're going to see as we go through this study together. We're going to see that God does this over and over and over again. He uses the least likely people to accomplish his purpose and to tell his story. And we'll see this. Abraham was old. Isaac was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was a slave. Moses stuttered. Gideon was fearful. Samson proud. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi was a widow. Mary was a poor teenage girl. John the Baptist was (laughs) peculiar, to say the least. And Peter impulsive. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Thomas had doubts. Paul was in poor health. Timothy was timid. The list could go on and on. But people God would use to tell His story. It's not who you would expect. It's not who you would choose. But it's what we see. And the question is why? Why does God use this long list of imperfect misfits to accomplish his purposes. I mean, why would he use an elderly and fertile couple to populate a nation? Because this is what God does, and he does it for his glory. The upper story is all about the glory of God. And God chooses the weak, and he chooses the least likely, because God gets the glory from that type of choice. God's strength has an opportunity to shine through our weaknesses. And so for everyone who doesn't feel like they're qualified to be a part of the story that God is writing, for everyone who feels like it's too late for me, I'm too old, I've made too many mistakes, I've had my chances and I blew them, for everyone who feels like I don't have the resources or the gifts, I don't have the right talents, look at Abraham and Sarah. And you know that God uses people like you and He uses people like me. And it's amazing. It may not make the most sense on paper, but it gives God an opportunity to be glorified, which is ultimately what the story is all about. It's about the glory of God shining forth. So a nation is built by using this elderly and fertile couple, and much like a neighborhood is built by by using a stay-at-home mom who is kind of quiet, but she opens up her home every week for a Bible study. And when God builds a school, He uses the kind of backward student who doesn't have a lot of friends to start a Bible study and turn that school upside down for Christ. And when God builds a family, He uses the father who grew up without a father for a good example to now lead not only His family, but to lead other men in leading their families. It's what God does. And when God builds a church, He uses a widow who prays faithfully He uses a plant manager who serves humbly. He uses a single mom who works 40 hours a week but finds a way 
to be generous with other people. These are the people that God uses to build. He uses broken pieces. He uses damaged pieces. And He says, watch what I can do with this. So we shouldn't be surprised even now as God writes His story that when God wants to start a national prison ministry, He chooses an ex-con named Charles Colson. When God wants to teach us about joy, He uses a quadriplegic named Joni Erickson Tata. And when God wants to teach us about His grace and hope, He uses a struggling baseball addict named Josh Hamilton. And when God is ready for a little glory from the proud athlete, He uses an Asian-American Harvard grad that nobody's ever heard of named Jeremy Lin to point to Jesus. And when God wants to teach us that heaven is for real, He uses a four-year-old boy named Colton. Why? It's because he can. It's because he can. He doesn't need the young couple who plays tennis every week. He can do what he wants to do through this elderly and fertile couple because that's the kind of power that God has. And that's what this story is all about. So you study Abraham and Sarah and you look at them and you think, well, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but is there something about them that would cause God to use them to tell his story? And yes, there is. And it's one word, and it's the word faith. Faith. Abraham's story is a story of faith. Now here's what's interesting. And you'll see this as we study the story together, is that we learn about doctrine, and when we learn about theology, oftentimes in the Bible we don't learn through a proposition, we don't learn through definition, it's not an information download, it's not a lecture that teaches us, instead we learn best through stories. Through stories. So when God wants to teach us about faith, He tells us a story. He shows us what faith is like through the life of Abraham. So if you look at his story, it's a story of faith in God's promises, in God's power. Look again, Genesis chapter 12, God says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take your family. I want you to leave your hometown of Haran. I want you. It's kind of on the border of modern day Turkey and Syria. He says, and I want you to go to a land that I have not yet designated. Just start moving. Just start moving. And it would have been difficult for them. I mean, maybe they were hoping, well, hey, you know, we're old. Several of our friends have moved to South Florida. Maybe we could go to Florida for the winter. Huh. My brother's in Brownsville, and they have what they call the winter Texans. They come from everywhere. Canada, Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, everywhere where it's frozen right now. They're, they're loving the... South where the low temperature is in the 50s <laughs> instead of 50 below. But they don't know where they're going, but they go ahead and set out on this journey. All kinds of objections, I'm sure. All kinds of reasons why this wasn't part of their plan. They made for themselves a very comfortable life. But God says, I want you to go. And here's what we read. This very simple verse of Abraham's faith, Genesis 12 and verse 4 says, so Abraham did what? He left. Abraham left. That's all it says. 
Not a lot of objections, not a lot of questions. He's an elderly man. He takes his wife and they leave. They don't, they don't know where they're going. But in Hebrews 11, the great chapter of faith, we read it earlier. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he did what? He obeyed. He obeyed and he went, even though he didn't know where he was going. How many of you ladies would take off with your husband who came up to you tomorrow and said, Honey, God talked to me last night. We're leaving. Where are we going? Don't know. Just get in the car. We're going. Oh, you'd club him to death right there, wouldn't you? <laughs> Ain't no way. Wouldn't you? And I, I think for us, we allow God, if we allow God to write our stories, we need to define faith this way. That faith is obeying God even when you don't know where you're going, even when you're not sure where He's leading you. And that sometimes can be difficult. But Abraham obeys God. He takes action. Gets off the couch. <laughs> the questions are not all answered. He doesn't know how everything's going to work out, but he knows what God has asked him, and he obeys God. He doesn't make, it doesn't make complete sense, but he obeys. He responds to God's call. He does what God asked him to do. He doesn't put it off, <laughs> but he makes a decision and he acts on it. I read a story about a preacher who received a gift from one of his deacons in church. It really hit close to home. Now, I hate to admit that, but as I read this story, you're going to understand why it hit close to home. At least some of you will. The story goes like this. A few weeks ago, one of our deacons gave me this book. It's called The Handyman Home Improvement Book. Uh, some of you are laughing harder than others to stop it. Apparently, he thought this might be helpful to me in some of my endeavors, and I am not a handyman by anyone's definition, certainly, yet I am a reader, and so I was glad for the book. And the first night I got it, I went home, kind of lay on the couch. I was reading it. It was a very helpful book. There are all kinds of pictures, and there are different steps. Very easy to do. It looks like, it, at least according to these pictures, it's easy to do. And there are different encouragements in there, like, hey, you can do it. You can do it. And it just tells you step by step how to fix things. Tells you what to do. It's all right here in the book. And as I was really enjoying reading the book, I'm saying to myself, ah, I didn't know that. Lots of good information's in here. So his wife comes by, sees him reading on the couch, says, what you're reading? He says, I'm reading a home improvement book. And just as he says that, his wife, as she walks away, the next day, he's still reading it. He's enjoying the book. A lot of good information. He's learning a lot. The wife comes again and sees him reading the book, the home improvement book, and she makes some kind of comment about the fact that reading the book doesn't actually improve the home. You can lay there and you can read it. You can learn a lot. The information is all here. But until you actually get up and do some of these things, the book's kind of pointless. Amen? <coughs> so in other words, <coughs> it's not written... For information, it's written for application. The whole point of the book being published is to help people improve their homes. And if all they do is read it, but no home improvement actually takes place, then it's really been a waste of time. Now, I don't know why that story seemed to fit me, but it does. Maybe there's some other men in our church here that would say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> <clears throat> But it could easily happen to us when we study God's Word as well. We can learn. We can find some new details about the story. We can discover some different things. But if all we do is learn about God's story and nothing changes in our story, 
then we're really wasting our time and we're missing the whole point. One of the things that I stress to the young people after they come home from CIY is they, they, have, they are touched by God. There's no doubt. There's tears. There's all those things that you see in a week like that at CIY. But so quickly that can fade when you have to come back and be in the world again and be around those friends again, those peers again that can cause you to regress. But here's the great news. When you let God impact your story, your story can affect others. And it can be done in a real, meaningful way. Abraham hears from God. He responds. He obeys. He gets off the couch. He does something. And I know that each week as we're reading through the story, it's not going to just be about learning. It's going to be about living, about applying. It's not going just to make to get the information. It's going to be applying that information and making it happen within my story so that I fit better into God's story. So very simply, the verse of obedience just says that Abraham left, went on his way. So God says, I want you to get up and move. I'm not going to tell you where. And then we keep reading and God promises Abraham that he's going to use Abraham to be a father of this great nation. And Abraham, again, could have had all kinds of objections. He could, I mean, he'd been married to this wife for decades and they didn't have any children, but he's an elderly man and she's kind of old too. And it's just, it's, it's just a very simple. In Genesis 15 to verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord. He just believed God. And the circumstances didn't give him a lot of confidence. There was nothing about the situation that would have given him faith, but he believed that God would do what God said he would do. How about you? How about you? Romans chapter 4, Paul says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. What he had promised. And could we just define faith that way, that faith is believing God against all hope? That's faith. It's believing God against all hope. So much of your story is going to come down to one very simple question. Do you believe in God? Do I believe in God? Do I believe that God can still work for good in all things? Maybe my struggles with generosity. Maybe, it, maybe it, giving isn't easy. Like most of us, it's easy to find yourself being greedy and selfish, but do you believe God? Do you believe that what God says? And we've had testimonies of what God does when you give. You can't outgive Him. Good try. Keep at it. I want you to, to, to prove to yourself that you can't do it, but you can't. And yet, if you don't give, you also hear the testimony of what happens. Blessings don't flow like they used to. I wonder why. Do you, do you believe God? Do you believe Him? Do I believe in God? I read a story about a pastor who went to the hospital to visit a couple that had a stillborn daughter. <clears throat> They're in the hospital, and so the pastor goes in. The room is dark, and the father's sitting in a rocker holding the lifeless body of his daughter. The pastor didn't know what to say, but he was going to just pray, so he gently knelt down beside the dad. And he began, he put his hand on the dad's shoulder and then reached down and put his other hand on the baby. And before he had a chance to pray, 
the dad said this. Well, I guess I'm going to find out what I really believe. I guess I'm going to find out what I really believe. And you know what? He's right. Do I really believe God? And do I really believe that this earth will fade away? Do I really believe that heaven is our only hope and that that's where our salvation lies? Do I really believe in being united, reunited one day with people that I love dearly and to be reunited with God? What do I really believe? So Abraham just simply believes God, believes Him against all hope. Faith is not believing that God will do whatever I want Him to do. Sometimes we get confused. We think that faith is just believing that God's going to do what I want Him to do and I just believe enough that He'll do whatever I want Him to do. And now would be perfect. Don't make me wait. Give it to me now. That's really not biblical faith. Biblical faith is believing that God will do what He said He would do and that God can do whatever He wants to do. That's faith. And Abraham models that for us. He has faith in God against all hope. You read a little bit more, you go into chapter 16, you flip, you flip right over there uh, to chapter 16. Here's what's happening. Abraham and Sarah, they believe God, but God's running slow. He's not moving according to their timetable. So Sarah decides that God needs a little bit of help. <laughs> ever, ever been there? You ever believe that God's just not moving quick enough so you're going to help Him out? God, I know, you, I know you're the God of the universe and the God of all creation and that you created me and your, your image and all that, but you know, you're just moving slow! And so I'm going to take this, I'm going to help you, God, because you really need my help. What usually happens when we do that? <laughs> Not good. Well, happens here. Genesis 16.1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. <laughs> and you're going to marry your... Don't name your girl, your daughter, Hagar. I just. <laughs> so she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, Abraham, being the strong man of God, stood up to her and he said, No! It's not what God said to do. We're to be patient and wait on him. Amen? Well, let's, let's read on. It says, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. Oh, really? <laughs> Do I have to? She holds the fruit and says, Man, it tastes good. It's pretty. And Adam said, No. God said, Don't eat of that fruit of that tree. I'll never do it. Well, give me that, honey. I'm going to take a bite of that right quick. So Hagar conceives. Not surprisingly, Sarai starts to become bitter towards her, mistreats her. Hagar is sent out into the wilderness, pregnant and alone. There are all kinds of problems that start to come because Abraham and Sarah got ahead of God. They are committed to God's destination, but they're not necessarily looking to God for direction on how to get there. And that gets us into trouble every time. I was thinking that if each of our stories were a book, there'd be a number of titles that would go along with the book. And the first title would be, No Way. No Way. God says, here's what, oh, by the way, 
the first two titles didn't make your written outline, so you'll have to write these in. Okay, the blanks in there are for number three and number four. I've got four titles for you. So some of you are going to fill in the first one with that, and then I'll get to the last two, and you're going, where are they at? Okay. So the first two, you've got to write in. Make out in the margin over there. First one is no way. God said, here's what I want, and we respond with rebellion. We actually go the opposite way. No, I'm not going to do that. No, you, what do you mean i got to go to church? No. Not during certain times of the year. I'm not going to go to church. I'll go other time, but I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to make it. What? No. 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 I remember when I was in the church in Denver back in the 80s when Denver was driving for the Super Bowl. Oh, it was brutal. People sat on the back row with their headphones on, you know, in their ear like Secret Service people. It was so funny because if, if Denver got ahead, you could see them go. Well, I thought they was getting in the spirit of God. I was going, whoa, man, let's sing a song here. All right. No. I'm glad we live in the central time zone. We can usually get through church before we have. Second title could be halfway. God says, here's what I'm calling you to do. And you say, eh, with some exception, no, I'll do it. I'll do it halfway. <coughs> I mean, over here at work, at school, this group of friends, no, I can't. I can't be this way. I've got to do it halfway. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want them to know that I'm really. I really want to be sold out to God. Uh, you know, they're gonna make fun of me. Uh, I, I'm not gonna get invited to go to parties. Uh, I don't, you know, these, these people at work, they, uh, it's a company policy that we can't be Christians here. Another title is My Way. <laughs> now, that's the first fill in that, that I do have in your outline My Way. That I'm committed to what God says He wants, but not necessarily to how He wants it done. I still don't mind being involved with Him, but you know, I want to do it on my terms. There's a call out for teachers. No, 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 no. That's not me. Don't ever say no to God. Don't ever say no to God. It's what we see with Sarah and Abraham. They get ahead of God. They want to do things their way. And it causes all kinds of problems. Hagar gives birth to a son named Ishmael. Look, I'm going to make him a father of a nation as well. God says. I mean, he's Abraham's seed. I'm going to make Ishmael the father of a nation. So Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations. And here's what Genesis chapter 16, verse 12, it says, His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. Speaking of Ishmael, guess what? Still going on. Still going on. See it every day in the news. These people, descendants of Ishmael, are trying to wipe out the descendants of Isaac. That's the battle. Genesis 12. Whoa! We're in 2014. If we could just get somebody in Washington to read the Bible and believe it, we'd get out of there and shut up and leave them alone. You don't tell Israel where their borders are. Mm -mm. God's God's land. So you've got Ishmael. He's going to have a brother named Isaac. Abraham is Sarah's son. Now Ishmael's the father of the Arab nations. 
Abraham, uh, so we have Abraham and we have Isaac. Isaac's the father of the Jewish nation, the Christian nation as well. And so, and the reason he's part of the, the reason the father of the Jewish nation is because Christ came through his lineage, and so we are Christians through that. And so here we go. 4,000 years later, we're still fighting, 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 fighting. Another way, of course, the way God would want us to title our story is that, well, God, it's your way. God, it's your way. That's where it's complete surrender, and we say, God, here's the pen. I'm going to let you write it, your timing, your will, you write the story. And what Abraham is most known for comes from Genesis 22. Flip over there. Genesis 22, we read about God calling on Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. In, 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 in Genesis 22, sometime later, it says, God tested Abraham. So we know it's the test from the beginning, because Abraham doesn't know that, but he says to him, Abraham, here I am. Then God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah. <coughs> this is about a three-day journey that God says, I want you to take to the region, uh, take him to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll tell you about. Now, this is, just seems so completely contrary to the nature of God. There's not one instance in the Bible of God requiring human sacrifice, not one. In Deuteronomy, in fact, he forbids this type of practice. So why? Why would God do this at this point? But here's what we read of Abraham. Verse 3. It simply says, early in the next morning, he heads out. So you have to love the faith as early in the next morning he gets up and he begins to obey. But it's a three-day journey and I'm sure there's a lot of questions. Why God? Would you ask me to do this? This is my only son, the son that you promised would be a part of the building of this great nation. And they finally get to the region of Moriah and Abraham says to his servants who travel with him, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Woo! I want to draw your attention to that phrase. We will worship and we will come back to you. Do you hear the faith in that? Hebrews later tells us that Abraham reasoned to himself that God could bring his son back alive. After all, Abraham had a son at 100 years old. If, if that could happen, then God could bring his son back to life. It would be easy. But whatever the case, Abraham says, we will come back. He doesn't say, we will go and worship and I'll come back. But we, my son and I, will come back. He knew that God would keep His promise, that God would be faithful. And faith, if we could put it in this way, faith is trusting God even when the story doesn't make sense. Trusting God even when the story doesn't make sense. In Abraham, he shows us what, what that looks like. You ever read a book and you get to a certain point in the novel where it just you're frustrated with the author. You're, you're, wanting, you're wanting more information and you're reading and it's just frustrating you, but, but you've read this guy before and so you know that there's twists, there's turns, there's conflict and all of that. And so you want to throw the book down, but you keep reading it and all of a sudden the journey opens up. That's where we're at. We don't, we don't quite know yet what's going on. Abraham's been called to do something wild and crazy and out of the ordinary. However, verse 6 as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, said to Father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replies. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. He's probably about 15 at this time. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld him or withheld from what's your version say? Me, your only son. Now, I'm going to push back a minute. <coughs> this is a critical thing I want you to pick up. If you haven't heard me all day, please hear this. You have the angel of the Lord in the region of Mount Moriah, on one of the mountains, who's saying to Abraham, I know that you fear God because you have not, look at this, you have not withheld him from me. Angel didn't say that he was God. Shouldn't he have said you have not withheld him from him? No, because the angel of the Lord is not Michael. It's not Gabriel. The angel of the Lord is either Jesus or the Holy Spirit. You have not, you have not withheld him from me. So we'll read about the angel of the Lord coming on the scene here in the Old Testament a number of different times. And when we read the angel of the Lord, it's God, either Jesus or it's God the Holy Spirit. Interesting twist to the plot. So the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and he took the ram, sacrificed his burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. His son Isaac grew up to marry Rebekah, and they were married for 20 years before they had their first child. Actually, twins, Jacob and Esau. <laughs> God starts to move a little bit more quickly in building the nation. Jacob had 12 sons, and that, that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's a lot of convoluted stuff that gets those 12 kids together, but nevertheless, they, they get there. So God was building the nation through Abraham, was He not? But here's what we need to understand, that this is a piece of the big picture. This is a piece, that lower story, the upper story that God is trying to tell us. There is a literary term that's going to be helpful as we study this together, and that term is foreshadowing. It's where the author gives a hint of what is coming later. It's what we're reading. It's foreshadowing because here on Mount Moriah, that region would be the same region where Jesus would be crucified several thousand years later. So here we have a father who's been asked to sacrifice his son. It was just a test, but the day would soon come where in this same area God would sacrifice his son and it would not be a test. It was a sacrifice for you and for me several thousand years after that. We are here, we are now, and God is still writing His story. And it's frustrating if you've tried to put together a puzzle and you don't have the picture. What's even more frustrating though is you get to the end of the puzzle and you're missing one piece. At that point, someone's life is in jeopardy. You're missing one piece. Could it be, could it be that God is still building His picture because there's one piece, your life, your story. You're the piece that's not ready to be put in the puzzle yet. But we can't finish the puzzle till we get your piece. 
when our story becomes a part of his story, we start to make it starts to make sense of the pieces that we've been given because that's what we are made for is to fit into his story. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you that you continue to write the story and that you are an author who can be trusted. So God, would you help us to just keep reading? And Lord, would you help us to put our confidence and our faith in you? And we, and we just, God, from Abraham's life that he believed and he obeyed and he trusted, Lord, would you help our story to reflect that even this week? Would you help us to believe against all odds? Would you help us to obey when it doesn't make sense? Would you help us to put our trust in you no matter what? God, thank you that in that same area of Mount Moriah so many years ago that you loved us enough to sacrifice your son so that he could take upon himself our punishment and he could make a way for us to be saved. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Maybe you're not a part of the story, but we want you to be. So would you today consider letting Christ be the Lord of your life? Would you today consider making this church your home? Would you today become a part of His forever family? As we stand and sing our hymn of invitation this morning.